Welcome to the Peer Bond Podcast. I'm your host, Sonny Manivanan. Joining me today is Jillian Betlick, the community lead at Calendly. Jillian has more than a decade of experience in community management across various industries, including engineering software, defense manufacturing, and more. Jillian is passionate about data-driven community strategies and finding ways to quantify the impact of community. She's also a big believer in being flexible and leaving squishiness in strategies to allow for experimentation. Jillian, it's so great to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you. So happy to be here. Great. I want to start with your background. It's fairly non-traditional, I would say, but that seems to be the case for many community leaders that we've already spoken to on the podcast. Tell us about your journey toward community management and give us the details of that. Yeah, sure. It's funny, like I'm sure someday at some point I'll meet someone who finally has a traditional past. Like it's got to happen eventually, but we're not there yet. And it certainly wasn't that way for me. The kind of funny part is that I fell into this accidentally, like most community managers do. But my story goes back a little bit further. It's kind of relevant to mention. So I grew up thinking I was going to be an engineer. That was my plan. I wanted to be a mechanical engineer or a civil engineer. And the reason being was that when I was a kid, my dad, my grandfather, everybody's an engineer. So I wanted to be an engineer. And my dad ends up showing up a whole one day when I'm five and he puts this video game on the home computer. And when I say home computer, we're talking like, you know, I think we had just gotten to like Windows 3.1 at that point. So way back. And he tells me, oh, yeah, yeah, this is a game. You can play it, you know, all that fun stuff. And like, I was raised in a very educational home. I was like, a video game? Oh, my gosh. And I'm like, what's it called? He's like, it's called AutoCAD. And I was like, oh. And so I got excited about this. And I spend the next roughly decade and a half drawing things on AutoCAD. Because in my mind, this was fun. You know, I'm being raised by a mechanical engineer and someone who had a drafting background and this is fun. And so, you know, I, I go through all of that. And what's kind of funny is that you know, also being an engineering household, I spent a lot of time being an early adopter of the internet and standing at websites and being part of the Lego Mindstorms forum. And so all of this stuff. And anyways, I, I end up going to college for architectural engineering. And while I'm in college, I'm also being a beta tester for Autodesk, who owns AutoCAD. And I was really good at crashing their software. Like, very, very good at crashing their software, so much that they actually took notice. And a, a job opened up at Autodesk to work on their tech support team. And I was like, all right. I was 19 years old at that point, still in college, and I applied for it. Somehow get in for an interview. I think it had to do with beta testing. And they go, okay, you know, how much experience do you have with, with our software? And I look them dead in the face and I go, 14 years. And they're like, what the, you know, just absolutely confused. And we say I ended up getting the job, but it was a really, really funny point getting there. And, you know, at this point, I'm 19. I have as much ego as a 19 year old, you know, has. Like, we, we think we know everything. And I'm answering questions on this Autodesk community, but I'm noticing that it's the wild, wild west. It doesn't feel like it's really loved for, taken care of. And, you know, and I spent many years at this point being part of communities that were loved and taken care of. And I could tell this wasn't one of those. And so I made a fuss like any good 19, 20-year-old would. And they said, well, you know what? If you think you could do better, go for it. And next thing I know, I'm being handed the keys to this massive lithium community with millions of people in it. 
And I was like, oh no, what did I do? Because I didn't even know that this was a thing. I didn't know that community management was a field. You know, I'm, I'm going on to Google and I'm typing in community management and I'm finding apartment complexes and literally everything but what I do. And I'm like, okay, I am up a creek without paddle. And um, I eventually found my people. And the more I got into community management, the more I was like, I guess I'm doing this for the rest of my life. I ended up moving away from architectural engineering and into community management. And it's been that way ever since, but it's been fun because I approach things as an engineer, which I think is is a really unique perspective to have in the community management field. That's such a fascinating story. To be a 19-year-old with 14 years of experience in not just any software, but AutoCAD, which is the bane of many mechanical engineering students' existence, and to have mastered that notoriously difficult piece of software and to show up at the company and say with a straight face that you had been using it since you were a five-year-old is incredible. Incredible. How come you didn't go into engineering? What drew you to community even at that point? Well, so one of the things that I love about engineering and I love about community management is the math side of things. I adore physics. I love physics more than probably anything else, more than any reasonable person should. And one of the things I started noticing was where I was going in engineering was that I wasn't getting to use physics in the way that I wanted to. But what's interesting about community management is that there's an element of social physics. You're basically like a building. You're trying to influence how people interact with that space, whether the space is physical or whether it's online. And when someone hands you a community like Autodesk community that has millions of people in it, and they're like, and here's the data. Here's all the downloads and the CSVs and the exports. And you start seeing the formulas and you start seeing physics actually at play in, in, in all of this. And it's been really cool because I've now actually spent my entire career basically playing around in those numbers. I'm a huge believer in that nothing in communities is random. It's all very predictable because I think social physics is absolutely something that exists. And I love that. I mean, if someone told me someday I could just actually spend 40 hours a week playing with CSV files and like social physics and predictive analysis, I'd be like, sold. I'll do it. I love the idea of social physics. And it's certainly true that while we as people have many more variables than physical structures, for example, we are still deterministic in many ways. And you really get to play with that as a community leader, no doubt. What happens after Autodesk? Tell me about that experience and where you went from there. Yeah. So, you know, my job ended up, my job at Autodesk ended up moving to California without me. It's all right. It happens. And so I found myself in a situation where I was looking at my next chapter and I had the fortune of very accidentally running into the founders of the community roundtable one day. Got talking with them, ended up getting invited to a conference that they basically helped me get into. And next thing I know, I'm getting approached about joining the community roundtable as a consultant, which was wild to me. Like I still, I was not very old at that point. And I was like, oh, okay, cool, cool. And so I ended up joining the community roundtable and I stayed with them for about five years. And I flew all around the world to work on all sorts of communities in every single space you could think of, internal communities, external communities, gaming communities, government communities. I got to work with the likes of EA Games, International Community of the Red Cross, Esri, H&R Block. I mean, just 
so many different, really, really, really cool clients. And I loved it. It was a really, really, really cool experience because how often does a community professional get to say that they worked on all of those types of things and, and all of those different platforms? And every day, every week was a different challenge. You know, some weeks I was dealing with hackers, some weeks I was dealing with troll attacks, some weeks I was dealing with trying to figure out massive ROI formulas and models, predictive analysis, everything, absolutely everything. And it was really cool. It, the, the way I always explain to people is that imagine doing like a medical residency at the most esteemed hospital in the world. And by the time you're done, you walk out of that and you are just like, so well-rounded. That's what it was like being at the community roundtable. I closed out that chapter just being like, I can do anything. <laughs> to have that confidence, you know, at that stage in your career is fantastic. Yeah. Tell me about what happens after the community roundtable. You take an interesting turn, you know, away from technology. Tell me about that. Yeah. I mean, in some ways away from technology, in some ways I'm more into it. And basically, you know, what was interesting about being a consultant, and I'm sure anyone else who, you know, ends up listening to this that works in that world, you're very familiar with the concept of you basically start working on this project and you're super, super passionate about it. And then all of a sudden someone's like, all right, now hand over the keys and move on. And it's tough because, you know, like I still find myself opening up some of those communities from years ago and being like, I wonder how they're doing. Are they okay? And I decided I really wanted to go back to having a community that I was fostering from start to not finished, but you know, from start to really being out there. And a really weird and cool opportunity came up to join a defense contractor, which is a very, very weird space to work in. I mean, when you see these movies and everything where there's people with security clearances and they say things like, I can neither confirm nor deny, or that's above your level. Like, are you clear to that? I worked in that. Like, I literally worked in an environment where we had to be worried about saying two pieces of information that could be added together to be something confidential. But anyways, I got an opportunity to actually go run an innovation community in the defense contractor world. And it was really, really interesting because I basically walked in and they said, okay, there's you and we're giving you a million dollar operating budget to fund the most amazing continuous improvement ideas that you can find across the company. Go like a million dollars. Like, I mean, that's just wild. It was really, really cool. We had submissions from every type of employee across the company. And we're talking in the range of like 40,000 employees, more than 2,000 ideas a year. And everything ranging from, we should put a popcorn machine in this cafeteria all the way up to, we should change how we're doing the coding on semiconductor wafers. And this is probably going to turn into a patent because it's so innovative. And everything in between. And that was really cool. But then one thing is, you know, again, as you probably noticed, I, I can't just let things be. I always want to improve things. We kept getting ideas about knowledge transfer, especially because we had a, a huge segment of our company was nearing retirement age and their knowledge was literally in notebooks at their desk. And we knew that this was about to walk out the door and onto a golf course or a beach or whatever it was. And I was like, why don't we build an internal community? which was even more wild for a defense contractor. And for some reason, they actually bit at the idea and they were like, all right, okay, let's give it a go. And I did it. I somehow managed to launch an internal community of knowledge and support in a defense contractor organization. And it's still around today. Like I have friends there and they tell me all about it. 
but it was it was really interesting just to see all of that. And like one of the really cool things that came out of that, like this is just an example, like a tiny thing you can do that can sometimes grow. It was a very acronym centric culture. And I was getting really fed up with trying to understand what does C4ISR mean and what was ECS and all this other stuff. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to start with the thing called Acropedia. And it was an open wiki. So any employee in the entire company could add, modify, or delete an entry. I put in, I think, by the time I left, I put in 63 acronyms. Last I heard, I think it's over 8,000 acronyms have been added or modified to this Acropedia. And I mean, it was so cool. I'd like walk them down the hallways, you know, going to meetings and you look into a meeting room and you see someone sitting at their computer paying attention to the presentation, but they'd have Acropedia up on their screen because they're trying to navigate the conversation. And it's such a small thing, but the impact, like just knowing that I had that impact, I was like, whoa, whoa. (laughs) That's a huge impact. I mean, especially at these bigger companies. And I also originally was a part of the aerospace and defense industry. So I know the environment that you must have worked in. It's a huge impact because there's so many people that are also siloed. And it's certainly the kind of culture where you never want to admit that you don't know something. And you just by virtue of creating something and putting it out there, got some incredible contributions and every single contribution helps everybody else. So that's a community as well, in a sense. Yeah, no, it was very, very, very cool. What's interesting though, having worked in that space too, you probably know you kind of get to a certain point where you're like, you know, I miss getting to play with like software that's on the internet because you you don't get to use things like Asana or Trello. You don't get to use Jira. And you kind of get to a point where you're like, all right, I think I want to go back to like the world where I get to use things that are not on premise. And that led me to heading back out into SaaS into, you know, all the high tech startup world. And that's been an adventure. That's great. Okay. So tell me a little bit about, you know, now you're back in SaaS. What commonalities do you see between building communities and all these different spaces? Autodesk and defense contracting and SaaS are three very different situations in many ways, but you know people are the same, at least at some level. What did you find to be interesting about how people are similar and maybe how people are different in these different communities? So the thing I, I find always remarkable, I was having this conversation with Peter earlier today, is that no matter what you sit in, I think this is kind of the element of like physics again. People are going to pursue the path of least resistance. And a lot of times companies think that they can influence that or they think that they know what people want, but they don't. And this is so evident in communities more than any other space. I have more than I care to admit have walked into a space where they were already in the process of, you know, talking about community or they've stood up a community and they're going, why isn't this working? Why aren't people talking about the things we want them to talk about? And the reality is, is that when you put a group of people together, they are going to drive. Your customers are always going to drive. And it doesn't matter if the customers are architects. It doesn't matter if they are engineers with security clearances. It doesn't matter if it is a person who owns a goat farm. We were just talking about that this morning internally. Or it's someone who runs a business with 50 to 100 people. They need what they need and they are going to drive your community there. And you can either fight it, which is going to cause you a lot of grief and heartache and headaches, or you can find a way to work with it. That's been a big thing for me is all across my career, I've been trying to get better at, like you mentioned again about how I like squishiness. I like to leave squishiness because squishiness lets me adapt to what my customers want to do and also doesn't have me completely out of alignment. Outstanding. 
you know, there are different types of communities. Communities get formed for different purposes in different situations at different stages of companies in different industries. In your experience, is there a framework or something that you use to figure out what kind of community are you trying to foster or build in the situation that you're presently in? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly a framework where, you know, community professionals, we know about what types of communities are out there. So we know about communities of ideation and communities of support, communities of practice, communities of knowledge. You know, we know about these things. I think what's really interesting about it is, is that we have to sometimes accept that our communities might kind of sit in the middle of a really weird Venn diagram, or sometimes our communities will actually kind of create their own niche space. So for instance, Zapier community, so the community I worked on previous to my current community, 1000% a community of support. They really wanted it to be a community of like inspiration and, and, you know, practice. But the reality was that customers wanted support more than anything. They wanted support. And it made sense. You know, when you have an app that has 6,000 different partner integrations, that's a lot of things to support. That's a lot of things that you can't find on the internet yet. Calumny, on the other hand, is actually really interesting because I initially thought we were going to be more community of support, but actually what's happening is there's this little niche space that we basically have found where people come to us for use case verification, which I would actually kind of title as inspiration. So it's becoming a community of inspiration. One of my favorite examples to date was we had a gentleman from Germany. His name was Carl. And Carl posted in the community one day saying, I want to use Calumly for my alpacas. And I was like, okay, Carl, you're going to have to tell me more about this. And it turned out that Carl basically ran hikes with his alpacas. He had 13 alpacas. And he wanted to figure out how he could make it so that people could pick which alpaca they wanted to book a hike with using Calumly. So that way they could see the alpaca's schedule. They could literally be like, ah, yes, Zorro is available on the 13th, which I was like, that, that's amazing. So now this post is up on the community for forever and ever. Carl and his alpacas is up on the community forever and ever. As it should be. As, as it should be. I'm like, oh my kid, can we just immortalize that? Like, it was amazing. <laughs> but that's the type of questions we get. I was just having a conversation this morning with a woman who is a office manager for a bank. And she's trying to figure out how to basically make it so that if people want to come in on Wednesdays, it's in person, but other days of the week, it can be virtual. But if you want to have your money counted, it obviously has to be in person. And like, these are the locations. And we do a lot of that. Like we do so much of that. And it's funny because it's not really support. It's, it's actually a very, very different thing. And it's so cool because you can now go onto Calendly community and actually get really inspired. Like you can just read through the post and be like, I didn't know you could do that. I didn't know you could do that. Like, it's a really, really cool space. But that happens to every community. I, I think every community starts out with an idea of what they want to be. And then you end up morphing into what your customers need and trying to align it with what the organization needs. And if you manage to do it right, you kind of have like this really sweet spot of shared value. And it's very exciting. Like when you, when you can tell you're in that space, it's really cool. The alpaca story will be legendary on this podcast as well, just like it's legendary in the Calendly community. It's awesome. Can't wait to go on that vacation in the near future, hopefully. One of the things that I have come to understand about the community leadership role is that it is so collaborative by necessity. And you really do need buy-in from other teams to make your community a success. And that can be challenging for people. What advice do you have for 
New York community managers on how to foster a great collaboration with the New York company. Tell us more about that. Going back to the very beginning of my career, I remember there was this mentor manager named Leo that I was working with on some stuff. And I think Leo in a moment of just like, I think he was slightly fed up with me and I, I deserved it. He goes, you know, if you want someone to do something, you need to find a way to make it clear that it's worth their while. You need to make sure that they understand why it's going to benefit them. And he goes, all you're doing is talking about how this is going to benefit you. And I was like, oof. And that stuck with me. And I mean, granted, I deserved every ounce of that feedback back then. But since then, what I've really done is made sure that when I approach a situation or conversation, I always tell people community is a service. Community is here for you. This is not about me. This is not about my program. I'm not a program. I'm not an initiative. I'm a service. Think of me as a consultant. Think of me as an advisor. Think of me as basically someone to use my brain and to use the tools that I bring to the table. And I find people tend to do really well with that because if you go into it and say, hey, give me my thing, my success is hinging on this, people don't want to do that. People have their own goals. Programs have their own goals. Departments have their own OKRs and all that fun stuff. And if you can basically frame community as a, I'm here to help you, you're going to get a lot further. And I wish I had known that all the way back at the beginning. I mean, granted, probably actually wouldn't be where I was now if I hadn't made a fuss and insulted some people, but I'm glad I learned that lesson and it's worked really well. That's a fabulous story and a very important lesson indeed. And the truth is everybody has to go through their 20s so they can thrive in their 30s. And that certainly seems like that's what the case was here. That's wonderful. Well, thanks for sharing that story. Let me ask you about the future of communities. There is a ton of buzz around AI and I'm not sure if you've seen, there was an AI-generated post recently of a user verification on Reddit. So somebody writes their username and their name, and they put it up in front of their face. And for the longest time on Reddit, that's how you would identify that you were valid and that this was really you. And it was a very low-tech way to figure it out, but it seemed to work. And now that doesn't work anymore. And so this is a broad, maybe too broad a question, but what is the role of AI in communities? Do communities matter more? How do they look different 10 years from now than they do today? How do they perhaps look the same? What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. I feel like a lot of people either love or hate AI. Like you're on one end or the other. And I happen to be very much in the middle because on bad days, you know, like I'll be completely honest, we've been dealing with a bit of a spam attack recently. And what's been so fascinating about the spam attack, I've never dealt with this one before, is usually spam attacks, it's random stuff that you're like, that has nothing to do with my community, right? And you just look at it and you're like, you're a spammer. Now what we're getting is these spammers are actually coming in and they're copying something that we've already said on the community, throwing it into AI and telling it to paraphrase it. And then they're pasting that back in the community. So it looks valid, except for that little like, period or comma that actually has a link to something malicious or whatever. And I'm sure lots of community managers are dealing with this. But what's interesting about it is, is that we can still tell that they sound different. And there's a lot of things like, you know, community managers, we hate to say it, but we actually have a lot of bias that we use in moderation to keep our community safe. And, you know, I've been able to do that. I've been able to really kind of keep an eye on our community because of that. But on the good side, I've done some kind of fun experimentation with this. Uh, one of the things I did when I was Zapier was we actually had a bit of a hackathon we got to do for a week. And I decided I wanted to see what would happen if I let AI 
I'm putting big air quotes around this, loose in Zapier community. I gave it one specific forum. That forum had disclaimers all over it that you're about to interact with, with a bot, which we named Zapricorn. And we wanted to see what Zapricorn would do. We wanted to see how Zapricorn would behave. We wanted to see if Zapricorn would kind of evolve, you know, all of that fun stuff. And it was really cool because over time it did. It, it actually did start like learning and, and kind of figuring things out. But it also actually went incredibly off the rails, like just in ways that it absolutely shouldn't have. And I, I'm excited because I think it's very possible that someday I think that we'll see AI being very useful for helpful content creation and helping us create strategies and everything like that. I don't think we're there yet, though. I think that's the big thing is like, I think, for instance, saying about the, the spam, we are able to tell very, very clearly that these were AI generated spammers. That's actually very, very interesting and quite scary. If you aren't really watching these communities, you know, that goes to reinforce the role of the community leader is to make sure that, you know, there's a whole new set of attack vectors now on these communities that need to be managed and carefully reviewed on an ongoing basis. That's fascinating. Fascinating. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of your thoughts. I've loved our conversation and I know our listeners will learn a lot from your experiences. Given that this is the Peerbound podcast, we ask every guest for a peer nomination or two. So we'd be delighted to hear your peer nominations of people that you'd love to hear on this podcast in the future. Yeah, the one I would love to hear is Nikki Thibodeau. She is an amazing community manager and, and professional and leader. And one of the things I love the most about Nikki is that she actually founded the Community Community, which is by far my favorite Slack channel for community managers. She's just such a cool person, tons and tons of personality, and just so, so smart. So I'd love to hear Nikki on here next. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you for that. And the last part, which is we do a very quick rapid fire round. So think Coke or Pepsi, and I'll ask a few of these and then we'll have you sign off. All right. Okay. Well, given that we have such cold weather in the Northeast, are you a winter person or a summer person? Winter. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So I am huge into backcountry splitboarding. That's what I would prefer to be doing with myself every day, all day. Problem is we just don't usually get enough snow for that, but I, I still love winter. Winter makes me happy. Okay. Excellent. Are you a morning person or an evening person? You know, I was always an evening person. And then recently my brain in the past year has decided we're going to be a morning person. So I think right now I'm actually solidly in between. I am like very functional from about 7 a.m. to about 9 p.m. I'm hoping I can go one way or the other again at some point because like I miss being like, you know, a night owl or like I wouldn't mind being like an early bird. But this whole just being in between is getting really weird. Excellent. Are you a coffee person or a tea person? Tea. I am a tea snob galore. I, yeah, it's pretty bad. I have this counter downstairs just loaded with all of these jars of tea. I love strong, malty, British tea. Very specific, I know. <laughs> that is very specific. Do you have a favorite brand? You know, it depends on if it's, you know, sometimes like you have to kind of rush through a cup of tea because you're, you know, you get too much going on. Versus like you got a cup of tea where you can just like let it sit. If I can let it sit, I love PG tips. Very, very malty, very strong. Like it wouldn't be good to down that very fast. If I have to drink it fast, there's a few from like, ironically, like Harrods, Fortnum and Mason. They have some really good, just kind of like breakfast blends that are just very pleasant. You can drink them very quickly. You're not getting too much maltiness. There's nothing like a great English breakfast tea. That much I know. And the other thing I know is you are definitely a tea snob because you've went to a level of detail 
in just a few seconds that I don't think many people would be able to match. It's fabulous. Okay, last question. Does pineapple belong on pizza? Oh, gosh. This is hard because like I am, you know, Italian by heritage. I think if you're in America, yes, yes. In America, you may absolutely put pineapple on your pizza. I love like pineapple with bacon. It's delicious. But when you're in Italy, no, 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 no. Like we will, we will not force the Italians to put pineapple on their pizza. That's just mean. We won't do it. We won't even talk about it. That was an excellent nuanced answer on a question that has definitely divided our guests in the past. (laughs) So I really appreciate that. And Jillian, thank you so much again for joining us on the Pierbound podcast. Great to learn from you and uh, excited to launch this episode very soon. Thank you.